Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. You all blessed today? All right. You ready to be taught and instructed and comforted and, and rebuked? Even rebuked, all right, all right. That's what the Bible says it does. And so we're going to open it up. If you've got one, Ephesians chapter 1. We're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we started this series called Beyond, talking about a God who is beyond our imagination, who wants to do beyond what we can imagine in our lives, in our hearts. And uh, our hope was that we, like the Paul who's writing this letter to these Ephesians, wants the Ephesians to be, would be having such a love for Jesus that it would be pure and incorruptible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, amen? So we're going to keep going today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 is what we're going to pick up. Last week I asked you the question, why are you so blessed? Like, what's the reason for you being so blessed? And if you weren't here last week, you can watch online, but I'll try and give you some of those updates as we're going through this message. Today I want to ask you a different question. Have you ever had a blessing that you missed out on? It was yours, you had access to it, whatever the scenario was, maybe some bank account you didn't know about, or, or somebody was going to give you something, or you had some resource you didn't use. You ever had a blessing that you missed out on? My wife and I were talking last week. We went on a little lunch date uh, last Friday. We were reminiscing about our early days of ministry, right when we got out of college. Uh, I was a student pastor at a medium-sized church. I don't know what they were thinking uh, with my zero experience and having no kids, uh, making me the youth pastor, shepherd these kids. I had no idea how wild kids could be. Uh, Now I've got four of them, and it just keeps being evidenced over and over again. And uh, we had this crazy idea that in the summer uh, of our our time of uh, being the youth pastor here, that we would take these kids, the leaders of the group, to Australia for a mission trip, and there were 13 of them. So it was my wife and I, 13 kids, all the way around the world, and we were going to two different communities. One was a city, Melbourne, some of you probably heard of that, very similar to uh, the United States in the sense that they've got air conditioning and they've got nice beds and all those kinds of things. They measure stuff different and drive on not the wrong side, the other side of the road, and uh, it's di- so it's different, but nothing like going to the outback. The other town that we went to was called Andamooka, if you want to look it up, and some of you may have been there or seen it or heard of it. Uh, Let me tell you, if you haven't, there's really two things you need to know. One, it's all red dirt. Everything's red dirt. There's dust everywhere. Two, it's hot. Okay? And everybody's got a different gauge of what hot is. This is hot. Not just hot. It's hot there. Okay, it's exhausting to even say the word, think about how hot it is. I remember when I moved, I moved here from Texas, uh, and my brother-in-law, who lived here already, said, oh, it's the North Carolina heat's not bad compared to Texas heat. That's a lie, just so you know. It's hot here too, but it's not hot. It's terrible. I don't know if it gets to 150 or what it is, but this community we were going to in the outback, it's so hot there that six months out of the year, they live underground. They actually dug out tunnels under the ground, uh, caves, and it's cooler, about 10 or 15 degrees cooler under the ground, and so they would live there for six months. The other six months, they lived on what was a former U.S. military base, and that's where we were going to be staying when we went there, and they don't have plumbing out there. They're not buying anything. There's only 500 people in this community. It's an opal mining community, um, aborigines out there, like all kind of, it's like what you would see if you watch TV about wildness of Australia. Animals, it's crazy. And there's these 500 people that live in this community, and these houses don't have plumbing, but what they do is they take all the rainwater that runs off the rooftops, they catch them in these huge plastic things. Like, I don't know if they're silos. They're bigger than a bin, bigger than a bucket, bigger than a barrel. It's a huge container next to the house. And I talked to the missionary before we went out there. I said, what should I do to prepare our team to come and be with you guys? He said, 
Well, it's a little different out here. You know, it's not it's going to be as hot as it can be. We won't be living underground. You'll be staying in these homes that used to be these U.S. military homes. He said the plumbing's a little different. When it does get hot, we run out of water. And so we take one-minute showers every other day. Now, I didn't realize the sacrifice I was getting into uh, going to this place. I like showers, just so you know. Uh, we've been in a small group together before. We've known each other very long. I'll tell you, like, I, get a, I take a shower in the morning. I take a shower at night every day. And it's not just to get clean. Like I get in, it's kind of get awake. The hot water kind of gets, gets me going, gets me relaxed. Then in the middle of the day, if I sweat a lot, I hate sweating. I will take a shower in the middle of the day. So I just confess that. Like just know that that's one of the idiosyncrasies of my life. So we go out there one minute. Have you ever taken a one-minute shower? Anybody here ever taken a one-minute shower? All right, we've got two, two guys. All right, the, the ladies are admitted. I think guys shower more than ladies. Just so you know, like in conversations, it was the guys on our trip that had a harder time. But a one-minute shower took training for our team. Here's how we do it. You stopwatch outside the shower, turn the water on for 20 seconds, turn the water back off. Lather up, turn the water on for 40 seconds, turn the water, it doesn't even have time to get hot at either moment, by the way. And so you're just doing a function. This is not an enjoyable experience. It's just get the nasty smells off of me. We arrive out there. First day, we're sweaty, carrying bags. We're doing vacation Bible school for kids. I'm preaching, red dirt sticking to my body everywhere. At the end of the day, we get together as a team and we talk about the day. How do we serve the missionaries? What can we do next day? Every meeting, I will confess to you as a leader. May have seemed like I was doing a good job, but in my heart, I'm going, I could ditch this team right now. <laughs> Slide back to the house, take a 15-minute shower, and nobody would know. I didn't do that. Shower every other day, not every day, for one minute. I'm riding with a missionary the last day that we're there. He's telling me about opals and talking about the town. He goes, it's different out here, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's different. And he says, do you think you could live out here? I said, ah, the one minute showers I'd probably struggle with. And I'll never forget his response. He said, one minute showers? I said, yeah, you said that you don't want to use up all the water. And so you guys take one minute showers. He said, do you think we're savages? One minute showers? He goes, that's only during a drought. We haven't had a drought in a long time. <laughs> the whole time, I could have been taking showers. Now I have an ethical dilemma. Because there's 14 people on my team that I've been leading with this misinformation <laughs> that aren't in this car at this moment. You can ask my wife how long it took me to tell her about this. Have you ever had a blessing that was yours, but you missed out on it? See, Paul's praying for the believers in Ephesus in the passage we're going to look at today because last week we talked about blessing after blessing after blessing. You've been chosen, adopted, predestined, set apart as holy, blameless, sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteed inheritance. We talk about just blessings pouring out. For some of you, that was new information. For some of you, it was information you know, but you haven't been experiencing. Paul's fear is that you'd have these blessings and not actually experience them. So he prays a prayer for us today. That's where we pick up today in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He starts off with this phrase. We're going to see this phrase all throughout the book of Ephesians. He says, for this reason. Three words that if you open up a devotional book or you open up your Bible and you start with that, you can't just read that. For what reason? So, and no one starts a conversation. For this reason. What, what are you talking about, man? For, but sometimes we jump into the Bible and we just go, all right, I want, to, I want to find a verse that God speaks to my heart today, but you don't know what it's saying if you don't know what's been saying around it. For what reason? Because you've been chosen, because you are saints, because you've been blessed, because of the new identity that you have in Christ is why he's praying this prayer. 
Remember we talked last week about identity. I said, you are saints. I asked you to tell your neighbor, you're a saint. I got home. I told my wife. We had a conversation where I pointed out her sinfulness. It doesn't go well, husbands. Don't do that. But I did. And uh, she said, I'm a saint. (laughs) I was like, she was listening to the sermon, unfortunately, uh, in that moment. But you have a new identity in Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's a huge if. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. You're holy. You're blood. You have this identity. And we live in a time with identity crisis, don't we? We've got people confused about it. We've got people stealing identities. Got, I had a call last week. I didn't tell you about last week, even though we were talking about identity. From California. I saw it on my phone. I was like, who's calling me from California? I answered it. Border Patrol calling me because there are packages that apparently I have a courier business and I'm putting my names on that have narcotics in them. And because smart drug dealers put their own name on their packages. And so, and, and the police called me because apparently, I don't know how many police officers we have here today, but do you usually call drug dealers and check in on them? Like, how are you doing? <laughs> or do you, just, do you just go arrest them? But they called me and uh, they said that this was happening and I could press one to speak with one of the agents. So I pressed one. And they started off with, what's your name? I said, you called me. <laughs> so, apparently you have my packages. And uh, he didn't. And I hung up on him. I thought about it. Later in the week, I was like, that could have been more fun than it was. I'm going to call them back. <laughs> and so I was going to call him back and be like, yes, uh, this is John Cullen, the executive pastor at Southbridge <laughs> Fellowship. Uh, you called me earlier this week, but uh, the number didn't work. And so they were confused about my identity already. Many of us confused about our identity. We got people, you know, Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And it used to be just like random daytime TV, and that's becoming more normal. I saw a celebrity just yesterday that said she doesn't let her kids call her mom because she doesn't identify with that title. We are confused about our identity. Identity is being stolen. We're being lied to about identity. And what you think about your identity is really irrelevant. What is the truth? What does God say? And he said here that you are chosen, holy, blameless, forgiven, redeemed, sealed, guaranteed, have an inheritance, been given grace, not just grace, lavish grace, not out of, according to his riches. These are all true things. But Paul's going, for this reason, I'm praying for you. Look at what he prays. He tells the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the prayer, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he's talking about the Son, he talked about the Father, the Father of our glory, it's again Trinitarian, it's again all throughout time, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Interesting words, revelation, seeing something. And the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And they'll talk about what to see after that. But think about this idea. He's saying, I want you to see this. It's already true, but do you see this? He wants them to experience this. Jesus says in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, though seeing, they did not see. It's possible to have physical eyes and not see. Did you see here in this passage? It says, the, I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened. And since we're talking about hearts and blocking vision, let me ask you, what in your heart could be stopping you from seeing what God wants you to see? Maybe sin. Sin happens in darkness. Bring it into the light. It's confession. Jesus is light. Maybe it's shame. It took a lot of people that have been forgiven, have been redeemed, that live in a lot of shame. So they hide. Hinder you from seeing of relationships, pursuits of false gods. There's good things. There's bad things. There's all kinds of things that could be hindering us from seeing. And so just a moment of introspection for yourself. Because I'm going to challenge us to pray. Notice this is a prayer. To pray for these things in our lives, that Paul's praying for these things in our lives. And and don't forget, as we get into the details of this passage, 
that it's a prayer. Like some people are like, I don't know how to pray. Or sometimes people learn how to pray by listening to other Christians pray. That can be a bad idea, just FYI. Have you ever heard somebody pray and you don't nudge anybody by you right now and thought, that didn't feel right. I feel like they were praying to the people that could hear them more than they were praying to God in that situation. I've done it. My daughter called me out on it this week. I went home for dinner. It was like Monday or Tuesday night. And it was one of those dinners where we were just grabbing this food off the stove and then we were going to get at the table. And one of my kids had already been seated and was ready to eat her meal. Guilty shall remain nameless. Do not try to ask because you see them on campus today. Um, and she said, can we hurry up and pray so I can eat? <laughs> to which I responded in my pastoral moment at the, at the time with the, one of the most sarcastic prayers I've probably ever prayed. I said, oh God of heaven, in this moment, can you bless this food for this one child? And can you, since the world revolves around this one child, help the rest of us serve this one child right now in these moments? Oh Lord, please help us for this one child. When I was done praying, my daughter was staring at me. She was not head bowed, eyes closed, none of that stuff. Thanks, pastor. It's like, that is not a real prayer that just happened right there. What we are looking at here, think about this, is an intimate conversation one-on-one -on -one between an apostle and the sustainer and creator of the world that God, as he moves to make godly men write these scriptures out, moved by the Holy Spirit, inspired him to put in this book so that we could then come and read. Do you want to learn how to pray? This is an incredible prayer. And you want to experience the blessings that we talked about in the first 14 verses? How do we do that? That's what this prayer is about. Pray, God, open our eyes so we can experience you. God, open our eyes so we can experience you. That's what he said. That's a different paraphrase of this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, so that's who we're praying to, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's being able to see. It's something being shown, revealed, that was formerly not seen, is now seen, that's revealed. In the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that your eyes are opened. Open our eyes that we can experience you. It's already true, but we, we need to walk in it. Have you ever had your vision blurred before or something obstructed your vision? I love here in the south. This didn't happen when I was in the north. When it starts raining really hard, people just stop driving. <laughs> Drove me nuts when I first moved here. Now I'm like, yeah, why did I used to drive when I couldn't see? This didn't make sense. But isn't it funny how many people will like just live their lives not being able to see well? I remember when I, I, I wear glasses. I don't wear them on Sundays. I don't like them on this microphone. And, and my, my eye doctor who's sitting in the second row right here told me one time, you have the perfect vision for a pastor because you can read when things are up close, but you can't make out the details. And so if somebody's really mad at you in the back row, you have no idea. So some of you have been attending this church for years. I've never seen you before. I'm glad you're here today. Um, I can, I, sometimes I'm like, are they falling asleep or are they just affirming what's happening here? <laughs> and so... So I can see movements and shapes, but I can't, I can't see all the details. And that started happening before I had glasses. And I was watching football was the defining moment for me. I was watching a football game, and I know the game of football well enough to know certain things always happen. There are four downs uh, in your possession, and they usually put those four downs in the bottom corner of the screen, and first and ten, second and five, third and three, fourth and one, whatever. And I was watching the game one time, and I had walked out of the room, came back in, I want to know what down it was. It said ninth down on the TV. 
It's like, there is no ninth down. And so I kept getting closer until I could see. And it didn't even say fourth down, which kind of looks like a nine. It said third down. I'm like, I got a problem. Now I need to go to an eye doctor and get some glasses. So open my eye so that I can see clearly. Can you see? Can you see God? Because he's saying, I want you to know God. But he's writing to believers, to the saints, to the chosen, to the adopted, that are in Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ. Why, why, why would he tell believers I want you to know him. I want you to know God. Don't we already know God? Because you can see throughout the Bible, right? Like if you just read the New Testament, you see it's possible to have proximity to Jesus and not have intimacy with Jesus. See Judas. It's possible to know a ton of the Bible, have knowledge about God, but not know God. See the Pharisees. There's an interesting passage of scripture that I would encourage you, especially those of you like that love the Bible. Like you maybe seminary, we got seminary professors that come and students that come and some of you in Bible study fellowship and some of you know Greek and all that kind of stuff. It's possible to know the truth and so fall in love with the truth and not fall in the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. And so it's fun to like investigate and find the things and be right and know this stuff. Jesus one day was talking to some guys that knew the Bible better than anybody in this room. They memorized big Old Testament books. And he says, you think that by knowing the scriptures, you have eternal life. And he was saying it sarcastically, just in case you didn't know Jesus had sarcasm. He said, you think you, you, think you have eternal life. The scriptures testify about me. Like every page of the scriptures are pointing you to me, and I'm standing right in front of your face, and you don't have a relationship with me. See, there's going to be a day where a lot of people stand before Jesus, and they go, look at the stuff we did, and look at all that happened. And he's going to say, Matthew 7, 21 to 22, depart from me, I never knew you, back and forth relationship. When he says to them that you, you know the scriptures, but you don't know me, that's in John chapter 5. A lot of times we just jump in and we read individual stories, and that's how preaching happens because we only have so much time on a Sunday morning. But I encourage you, read the Bible as a story, the whole big story. The whole thing points to Jesus. And if you read John, by the time you get to John chapter 9, the most ironic story probably in the New Testament happens. There's a guy who's been born blind, Jesus opens his eyes. And so a lot of times we look at that and we're like, he's got power to open blind eyes or... Sometimes we answer the question like, why does bad stuff happen to people with a passage like that? Because they ask the question, who sinned, his parents or him? And, but if you back up and you start looking at what's been happening, in John chapter 8, there was this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, and these men bring her before Jesus, and Jesus says to these men, let he who's without sin be the first to cast a stone. The oldest leaves first, drops the stone, and they all leave and so he's just pointed out, you guys got stuff in darkness. Let's, let's bring it out into the light. I want you to see. And they leave. And then he says to the woman, go, sin no more. And then he teaches a sermon. If you read all of the context, he steps up and it was actually the festival of lights and he goes into the temple and there's these huge torches behind him and he says, I am the light of the world. And then he comes into John chapter 9 and walking by this guy that's been living his whole life in darkness. He was born blind. And they ask these questions like, who sinned and what happened? And he opens the guy's eyes. And this guy, here's the irony, he can see and he realizes he spent his whole life in darkness and everybody around him is blind spiritually. His parents, the people that come in, his neighbors, the religious leaders, everybody in the story that this guy interacts with cannot see spiritually what's happening. And he can see all of a sudden. At the end of the passage, the guy sees Jesus face to face and worships him. And then Jesus does some teaching, and the religious leaders that he was talking to in John chapter 5, when he said, you know the scriptures, you don't know me, they say, 
are we blind too? They can physically see, and they're going, are we blind? And the answer to the question is yes. Yes, you are. But you know about God. And there's people that are around God, and they'd say they're even walking with God and would know all the phrases that Christians use for intimacy. Judas, but you're not. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. But here it is, he's talking to people who do know him. It said to the saints in Ephesus, to the chosen, and it's before this reason that I'm praying that you would know. Why would he say that? Because they do know him. Here's a problem we have in Raleigh-Durham. We associate relationship with God with an event. Some kind of conversion event. And, I'm, and there should be a moment of repentance. I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but that's not it. It's not just walking an aisle, raising a hand, making a commitment. Like, it's not just that moment. What you see in the Bible is that eternal life is present tense, by the way. Jesus defines it, and when he's praying for disciples in John chapter 17 and verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. And so everybody can argue about it and all their philosophies and religions, but here's what Jesus said. This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom, and he's talking to the Father, you have sent. It's a prayer. That's the Lord's Prayer, John chapter 17. It's him praying for us. And he says, here's what eternal life is, present tense, right now. Eternal life does not start when you die. Eternal life starts at the moment of that event when you repented and turned to Christ. But it keeps going. And you see that when a guy like Paul himself, who was a former door-to-door terrorist in the Middle East, is converted to Christ, starts planting churches, and then writes one, while he's in prison, writes a book on joy. It's called Philippians, if you want to read it. I'm struggling with joy. And, and he says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ. Wait, you do know Christ. You, you're telling everybody else about Christ. And he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing and his sufferings. In other words, I'll do anything. I'll go through anything if it helps me know my Savior more. He wants to progressively know Jesus more. Do you want that? And then it says in the Bible too, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, that right now we know partially, but there's going to come a day when we know fully, and then we're going to know fully just as we are fully known. The way that Jesus knows us, we're going to know him. And so there's a day that it's going to be perfect. And so what you see throughout the Bible is there's a, there's a present knowing of God. There's a progressive knowing of God, and there's a perfect knowing of God. Theologians talk about it as salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation is the moment we enter into relationship with God. But then what happens for many people is they're like, I got that taken care of, and now I'm going to live my life my own way. And the relationship, what kind of marriage would that be? What kind of relationship, what kind of friendship would that be? If you're like, you want to be friends? Yeah, let's be friends. And we never talk. There's a progress. There's a, you continue to get to know Him. He's saying, I want you to know Him. I want you to experience Him. And then what I could say about that is infinite because God's infinite. Amen? That's why we're going to spend eternity getting to know Him more because it'll never run out, the knowledge of Him. But this passage, thankfully this sermon's not infinite, this passage tells us three things. That Paul's praying that we, if we want to know God, here's the three things I'm praying that you would know. Your hope, your riches, and your power. Your hope, your riches, and your power. Look what he says in this passage. First one, hope. And so you want another prayer? Pray this. Pray, God, open our eyes to, to experience your calling of hope. Open our eyes to experience your calling of hope. That's from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, 18. Look what it says. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Okay, we want to know him. How does that happen? 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. (laughs) Hope's an interesting word uh, nowadays. I think most of us would agree that hope is at a pretty low point in society right now. Princeton had done a sermon or a a survey and uh, tried to see where we were at in our kind of mental health as a culture in America. And this is two years ago. This is before COVID hit, before all of the stuff that we've seen uh, with death rates and pandemics and political arguments happening. And they said that America was entering, and their phrase that they coined, an epidemic of hopelessness. So before all of that, in the middle of the, of the pandemic last summer, uh, in, in June, July of 2020, the U.S. Census Bureau had surveyed Americans and came to the conclusion that 48% had said that they were either down, depressed, or hopeless, no hope at all. 40, that's half the people that you come into contact with. Some of you here. It's impossible statistically for it not to be some. How many of you think that we're at a low level of, how many of you think we're at a high level of hope? Anybody? Does anybody think that like, think people are pretty hopeful right now? How many of you think that we're at a low level of hope? Would you raise your hand? How many of you never raise your hand no matter how many times I ask you to raise your hand? Right. <laughs> I got him. I see him. I'm that guy too. Just I see you over here. But did you just see that miracle that took place? Almost all the Christians agreed. Amen. It's amazing. Sorry, that was sarcasm. I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe I should. I don't know. Whatever. It happened. Lord, you deal with that. Anyway, hope's a low. Here's my problem with the stats. They're way too high. Too many people are claiming to have hope that don't have any hope, biblically. What we're going to find out when we get to the next chapter, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. If you've got a Bible open, I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen too. Remember that you, he's talking to them about their salvation, remember that you, at that time before Christ, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope. You had no hope. And without God in the world. He was telling them, you are headed to hell. Now, there are some people that will be mad, and I'll get an email. Don't email me. I don't need to hear it. You've sent them enough times. There are people that get mad every time I talk about hell. And people get mad that we talk about people that are going to hell. They think it's arrogant that we talk about it. We're just saying what the Bible says. Sometimes you guys go to funerals, and people lie to you the whole time. They tell you somebody's in a better place. If you know somebody that lived their entire life separate from Christ, apart from a deathbed conversion, why would you in any way ever think they're spending eternity with Christ? And that's the majority of Americans. It is more than half that are separated from Christ, okay? That road is narrow, Jesus told us, and then people statistically already acknowledge it in surveys now. So the majority of people don't know Christ. They're separate from Jesus. So what is their hope? And it's the same hope that some of us have in the church, unfortunately. We've oftentimes got fantasy hope and false hope. False hope is when we have our hope in something that's temporary, so if I asked you, if you, here's a kind of a counseling tip for you. Uh, follow the fear, find the hope. What's your greatest, what's your fear of the thing that you could lose in this life that would devastate you? You'd be ruined. And there are some good things in our lives that we love very much. And I'm not saying it should be easy. We'd be, you know, your spouse dies or you lose your job. That is hard. That's a difficult. I'm not saying you wouldn't cry, but I'm talking devastated. You'd lose all hope. What is it? If you find that thing temporarily, there you've identified your idol. That's a false hope. If you're hoping in something that's temporary, then your hope is temporary. And what many of us do as a culture, here's fantasy, is that we entertain ourselves to not have to deal with the hopelessness of this life. 
And so whether it's Netflix or little books when you're a little, you know, happily ever after, somehow we get this idealism of what we think life should be like or how it should be going. Even though Jesus promises us in this world, we're going to have trouble. You won't even be saved if you don't go through trials and tribulations. Like there's difficulty. That's part of this world. But we don't want to deal with that. It's not part of the American dream, not part of our hope. And so we hope, i.e. wish, that these things would go this way based on no facts and no promises from God. It's not objective. So when I say the word hope to many of you, your ears hear the word wish. That's an American mentality reading that into the Bible. That is not how you read the Bible. What God's doing is he's speaking from his truth into our American culture. Here's a biblical definition of what hope means when you read it throughout the Bible. Hope is a confident expectation of things you know to be true so you know they're true, like 100% knowledge they're true, like your salvation, like Jesus' second coming. Like you know that it's, it's true, you just haven't experienced it yet. And so with your salvation, there's an already not yet of that, right? If you, if you know Christ, you know that you're saved, you know you're going to be with Jesus, you are experiencing it, present tense, but you haven't perfectly experienced it until the moment you're face to face with Jesus. So you know it's true, but there's a hope to it. An eager expectation, a confidence, because you know it's true, but you haven't experienced it yet. That's the biblical definition of hope. And what you see is the people who have that kind of hope, the world sees that because everything that's temporary, all the false hopes can be stripped out of your life and you still have hope. And they ask you about that. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. That is not an apologetics verse, just so you know. Like people say, you, you defend your faith, always have the… Con I think you should have to defend your faith. That's not what that verse is about. And here's the question I have for you, follower of Jesus. Has anyone ever asked you about your hope? Ever, ever in your… not this week, ever asked you about the hope that is in your life? If not, you have the hope. You've been given the hope. Are you experienced? Are you like me with the shower? It was there. I just wasn't experiencing it. Paul's going, I want your eyes to be open to experience this hope. But not just experience the hope. Look what else he says. You'd open your eyes and you can experience this inheritance. Pray, God, open our eyes to see the riches of our inheritance. There's a prayer. We talked about inheritances last week. I told you I'd tell you a little bit more this week. I spent a little bit of my time studying this week reading inheritance stories. Uh, that's fun, by the way. The average American doesn't leave an inheritance. Just I learned this this week. Uh, the average American, based on 2016 stats, so it's probably worse now, uh, is that we have $62,000 in debt when we die. And so those of you that are kids that are sitting here, maybe look at your parents and go, you leave me? What do you got going here? <clears throat> average, most of you aren't going to get any inheritance. This is the gist of that. But sometimes people get Sometimes an unexpected in here. I've read one story about a guy who was a janitor, drove a really beat down Toyota car, and uh, nobody knew they had any money. He'd go chop wood around this, the community for fun. People thought he was a nice guy, but he left over $4 million to a hospital, over a million dollars to a library. He was investing in stocks with his money, and no one knew that he was rich. I read about some guys that were living in a cave in Hungary. They were literally, <laughs> hungry. they were literally like penniless, begging for food kind of deal. And they didn't know, doesn't everyone fantasize about this? This is a true story. They had a relative, one generation removed, that had a $6 billion estate. And it got divided three ways, and those two men got $2 billion each. Crazy. Uh, there were a couple that had to do with their marriages. There was one German poet. He is a little bit older. I don't think he had a very good marriage because uh, in his last will and testament, he left his entire estate to his wife under one stipulation. She couldn't have the money until she remarried. His reason why, and I quote, because I want at least one man to regret my death. 
that's not good. There was another guy, his name was Jack Benny, if you want to look this up, exact opposite kind of situation. After he died, three or, three or four days after he died, uh, his wife got a knock on the door and there was a gentleman there that delivered her a rose. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Because Jack Benny had said in his last will and testament, I want you to set apart enough money that every day for the rest of her life, she'll receive a rose from me. She lived nine more years and received over 3,000 roses from him. And so, their inheritance stories are incredible, but none like this. Remember last week, I told you the Holy Spirit, the earnest money, the deposit. And what is earnest money? It's given to you as a promise there's more to come. And so, what God's saying is you're going to experience me fully. And so, I don't know what you thought of when I asked you at the beginning of this message, what hinders your seeing God? You know, we're told, throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. you got a great cloud of witnesses and pursue Jesus. Well, when you get to heaven, all the hindrances are gone. See, we don't know all the details of what heaven's like. There's some great books. Randy Elkhorn has a book. And if you read through it, it's about like that thick. But he asks like, is there dust in heaven? Like he asks these questions to get you thinking about it. Things that we just don't know some of the answers to. But what we do know, there's no sin. There's no crying. There's no pain. The diseases and the difficult, that's all gone. And, and so what we're going to experience is God, and we're going to experience the fullness of satisfaction of enjoying God. Think about having complete and total joy. And we're going to know the, 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 the satisfaction of total peace, not just with God, but with each other. And, and we're going to live with fullness of love, like the experience that is so foreign to our world that many of us can't really grasp the idea of it. Because you ever read your Bibles and see that it talks about rewards? Have you ever thought to yourself, like, how is it that some people are going to have more and some people are going to have, that doesn't feel right. Like, how does that work? And I've wondered before, I'm like, why? Jim's going to have a Ferrari when we get to heaven. Don't be riding down like a secondhand moped, like 25 miles an hour. Woof, you know, 300 miles an hour, Jim comes flying by and be like, that's not cool, God. Should have stored up more treasure in heaven, Scott. Like, what? how does that work? I remember... I heard a sermon. I was talking to a friend about this. He's like, it just seems workspace merit, and we're arguing. I heard another pastor reading a sermon by an old, old, old guy who died a while ago. His name's Jonathan Edwards. He's oftentimes famously known for hellfire brimstone, like sinners in the hands of an angry God. But he preached a sermon called The Happiness of Heaven. And you might look it up. You can find it online, read the whole thing. But let me read you a little, little section of it, because he helped me think about this in a way I'd never thought about it before. He uses some old uh, type of language here, but I'll try to interpret that in a minute. It says, Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of a disciple shall in, shall in no wise lose his reward. I just imagine that's how it sounded. Um, no wise. That's an interesting way to say it. Uh, but this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few. It will be, it will be no dampening to his happiness. I don't know if he was British. I don't know what that was. Anyway, of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, it won't, it won't make you feel sad because you have a lower degree of happiness than another person has a happiness, is what he's saying. He says that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast in the ocean of happiness is full. Though there are some vessels far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. And so how does this work? And I'll, I'll share with you, just going over to the baptismal, uh, not to baptize people, not that we won't. I'm bapti I baptize people with my clothes on. James, you know, baptize people with clothes on before. That's what we do with James when he wanted to get baptized. But it's, I don't have an ocean here, but I got a body of water. 
I wouldn't say vessel. That's just not a word that I normally use. Jonathan Edwards did. I would use bucket. And so I've got some buckets here. I've got different size buckets here. I've got a large bucket, large vessel, and a medium bucket, and a small bucket. And he said, if you cast the vessels into the ocean of happiness, they're all full. And you think about that, and I'm kind of a visual learner, and so I take these buckets and I throw them into the water, which there is some water in here. They all fill up. Every one of them does. And so if I take the little vessel out, it's full. I take the, the medium-sized bucket out, it's full. If I take the big bucket out, it's harder to get out, but it is also full. And we will turn the Lowe's label because we did not get a sponsorship for this here. <clears throat> But what he's saying is, if, if you are the small bucket, you're, you're going to have full capacity, like every capacity that you have for joy is going to be full. If you're the medium bucket, full. Big bucket, full. But if you're the little bucket, you look at the big bucket, not only are you going to be full, but you're going to be rejoicing that, that they're so, they have so much joy that you're going to have even more joy, that overflowing fulfillment and satisfaction. So if I look at my friend, if I'm the little bucket and I'm like, well, I don't want to do these things and only sort up these rewards, I'm not going to be jealous. There's no jealousy in heaven. There's no envy if my friend Spiro is the medium bucket. And, and, and if somebody else is the, is the large bucket of James, I was talking about getting baptized, the large bucket, I'm not going to look and be like, well, man, what was his eternal investment strategy on heaven? I sure blew it. My little thimble over here, he's got a barrel. No, I'm going to have full joy. And he's going to have full joy. And then I'm going to rejoice in the joy that he has because there is no envy, but it's not. So here's the reality. This is how it can be that we're not all going to have the same, but it's going to be perfect for each one of us. Because doesn't the Bible say, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not steal, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you give a cup of water to this person, you will be rewarded. God's going to see it. Some are going to rule over 10 cities. Some are going to rule over five cities. We see all these things, and many of us, we just don't understand it, so we block it out. Here's the reality. We're part of a kingdom that's so different than this kingdom, our minds won't really wrap around it, because it's beyond our imagination. But that's your inheritance. Do you live in light of your inheritance? God, open our eyes for our inheritance, for our hope. And did you see, did you see the last part for our power? He talks here about the power that's your power. He says, you can pray a prayer. God, open our eyes to see your power in our lives. It says in verses 19 through 23, we'll talk about this some today. We'll get into it a little bit more next week. The, the chapter divisions here in this, in this passage are great for finding stuff, but they don't always help with the flow of thought. And so what we're going to talk about here sets up what we're going to talk about next week, and it all ties together. It says in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable? I pray that you know the hope. I pray that you know the riches of your inheritance. I pray you know the immeasurable, and he uses five different words for power here. This is the power passage. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might there's another word for power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, that's all earthly rule, doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office, he's in his heavenly office. It's above all spiritual rule, all the things that are happening that we oftentimes don't see that we really need to wake up to as Americans, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put 
all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's his power. It's resurrection power. He could have picked anything as the example. He doesn't say, and all, the power that he used in creation when he created it out of nothing, he didn't say when he parted the Red Sea. He said when he raised Jesus from the dead. You know, one of the things I love about our church, there's a lot of stuff I love about our church. One of the things I love, that whenever we sing the song, Living Hope, I don't know if you know that song, when we sing through it, it talks about Jesus being crucified and it talks about his resurrection. There's a line in there where it says, and his lungs began to breathe. People always, somebody, there's no plants. We don't like to go, hey, that's your week to yell. Like somebody yells or claps or starts singing super loud. And I'm always like, yeah, this is like a moment of victory. Have you thought about the resurrection and the power of that? I've been to Israel. Uh, different people debate, like Catholics think it's one tomb, Protestants think it's another tomb. What, what tomb was Jesus buried in? I'll just tell you this, they're all empty. Okay. Um, they're all dark, they're all cold. Can you imagine? Imagine Jesus and, and the crucifixion. He's beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross. Father, forgive them. Darkness covers the earth, earthquake. I cut my spirit to your hands. It's over. He's dead. They put his body in the tomb. Not for one day, not for two days, for three days. Like, no matter what doctor you are, how atheist you are, what any of the, everybody's calling it at that point. Three days? No blood pumping to the hands. No blood pumping to the head. No brain activity. He's dead. And then after three days, heart starts to beat. Blood to the hands, feet to the brain. Lungs start to expand, eyes open. He comes out of that tomb. He is risen. I do you believe that? That was weak. He is risen. I'm glad you were paying attention both times, though. Think about it. Well, thanks for admitting it. <laughs> that power that raised Jesus from the dead is what was required to change your life. Did you see verse 19? Look at verse 19 and notice the word toward us. And what is the immeasurable great power, a great greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he, the same power that raised Christ from the dead was the power to change your heart from spiritual death to life. We'll talk more about that next week. Then he goes through and he describes it. And notice here that, then first of all, let me say this. Jesus is the head of the church, but that's not what this passage is saying. Did you notice that? And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over how many things? Again, come on, come on. All, all the things. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But we have hope in things. We've got hope. Like, if we just educate the next generation, if we could just get the right laws in place, if we could just get the right people in the right offices, if we could just get the... Who's over all the systems? Jesus. According, if you believe the Bible, it says Jesus over the judicial system, over the political system, over the school system, over the financial system. Jesus had over all things. And then there's some people that are like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Really? Because Jesus loved the church and he's using all things in existence to serve the church. Did you see that? It's to the church, he says here. 
And who is Jesus? Because, like, who's this Jesus guy? And, and remember, he's speaking to people that came out of the occult. Some of you, I told you to read Acts chapter 19 and 20. Did you read Acts chapter 19 and 20? You're crazy. Okay, some of you admit it, you didn't. I appreciate the honesty here today. You paying attention? Nah, when's lunch? All right, appreciate that, but I'm gonna keep going. So here's how it goes. In the occult, people thought that if they had, a, if they named a name that gave them authority, gave them power. And so there's like this one story I told my kids, they couldn't believe it. They're like, that's in the Bible? And so it's a Sons of Sceva story. In Acts chapter 19, 20, uh, what happens is there's an exorcist that goes to a house trying to cast out demons and the demons start talking back. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Not volunteering for demon casting out, many of you probably. And uh, the demon's like, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you. Beats the guy and his kids. They run out of the house naked. And you know what it says? Everybody in Ephesus knew about it. Do you know what I have in my Bible? I thought it was pretty scholarly. No, I put, you think? <laughs> you think, everybody? You stripped this guy's clothes off and beat the snot out of him? <laughs> yeah. Because they didn't have power over Jesus. They didn't even know Jesus. They're just trying to use his name. And so they were trying to use it so they'd have power. And go, no, he's the name that's above every name. It's at the name of Jesus that people are saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name by which you will be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's your power. That's your power. And I want you to notice something about this prayer, whether we're talking about hope, we're talking about power, or we're talking about your riches. Not one time does Paul say, give me these things. Give me power. Give me inheritance. Give me hope. No, they're yours. Are you experiencing them? It, to ask God to give you hope is, is as silly as if Joshua in the Old Testament said, God, will you give us the promised land? Like, if I were God and Joshua said, give me the promised land, I'd be like, I'm going to smack you, son. I already gave you the promised land. You need to walk in it. How do I get there? Walk with me, and I'll give it to you. It's yours. It is your inheritance. You, but many of us don't experience it. It's not because it's not available. And how do we get there? You start praying. God, open. You want to know God? God, open my eyes. That's what the apostle Paul did. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask that we would know you more. There are hearts here that long to know you more, that haven't been seeing the hope that you've offered, that haven't been seeing the inheritance, that haven't been seeing the power. I pray that you give them a glimpse, a small glimpse today that would whet their appetites that they would come and you would just pour out like a shower, like a fire hydrant of blessing into their lives as they experience knowing you. And Father, the hearts that don't want to know, that are apathetic, will you give them something that wakes them up? And Father, the people who don't know you, that are angry at you, or the, the, the folks that are, there's some folks that I know that are, are doing their own thing. They claim to know you, they play games with you, but then they go out and they do their own thing. God, would you convict their hearts and show them how how much more satisfying you are than drugs, than sex, than power, than fame, than reputation, than, than anything in this world. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.